Welcome back to the War Horse Podcast, pilot episode four. I think we're going to close the pilot episodes at five. Um, and you can hear tonight that um, the War Horse is not running, but, uh, but we are together. The windows are open, and it's a little late, and it's plenty warm. So, instead, I have arrayed around me my weapons, um, in all seriousness, because they comfort me. Um, someday, maybe the big goal, that's when I know I will have made it, is when Winkler Knives, either one agrees to some sort of deal where we get to put the um, the Golden Goat Guild logo on their leather sheath. Or they just issue like 50, maybe 100, who knows. Um, like an exclusive run. I think we'd do the operator. I think that's the only Winkler knife I have actually, but I have two of them. I always like to have, if possible, um, you know, finances considered here, obviously. But when I come upon something that I genuinely think that I would be willing to to take a life with or to die um, in, with it in hand, you know, if possible, and uh, they haven't paid me yet, so I guess we'll just cut the cut the sponsor idea there. But fantastic knives, that would be amazing. And um, got my tomahawk, which is um, made by I don't know the guy's name. I just he goes by Walk by Faith seven 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 on um, I think everywhere. But um, very high quality work, and um, I am going to have him redo the handle. There's a little more taper than uh, I prefer. But the head, the shape, it's got the classic um, kind of hammer. Nothing, you know, it doesn't protrude really far. Um, very lightweight, well-balanced as it is. Um, maybe I can get it into the hands of a real expert, uh, like Mr. LaFond, and, um, we'll see what he thinks of the quality. I'm still working on that, um, and, um, I think it's, I think it's going to happen. It's going to take some travel, 
and I've got I've got a lot on my mind tonight, a lot going on, independent of the internet and everything else. But um, you know, highs and lows, as the dude says. And uh, to round it up, I have um, this Spyderco. I think it's they call it the Paramilitary Two. And I've installed this um, thing called the Fang, which is essentially uh, a pretty good copy, or I guess it's not a copy, but it effectuates the same action that um, the Emerson Wave performs. So right out of the pocket, snaps open, seems to work very well it's much bigger than the emerson um which at first i i didn't really like and there's some things i would change about it i think it could still be made a bit smaller however i am happy with it and again these guys are not sponsoring me so that's the end of that and uh lastly i have been um i've been very fond of this um Sig Sauer 230, not the 232, made in Germany. Um, I've had it for maybe 10 years, and uh, I was lucky enough recently to get my hands on one of these, uh, well, a couple of these Enigma sort of rigs from, um, I don't know how you say that these guys, it's like PHL holster, PH holster, or something like that. Just Google Enigma holster, and it comes up. Um, and uh, I actually got one for Glock 17, and it worked very well. And I was one of those things where you get it in hand and. Um, you can kind of see the inventor's thinking. You can you can see and say, how do I how do I get around the fact that you know this limitation or that limitation? And the way this guy did it or what he did was essentially he's got the plastic Kydex you know shell holster, and then he's um, fitted a sort of band um, on the front. Uh, you know, he's got a, a, a name for it. And then that attaches to sort of a soft loop, uh, a belt that just goes directly onto your skin. You skip the your pants belt and all that. So it rides underneath all of that. Um, and then it has this sort of garter-like uh, device that hangs down. And that's the, I guess... The, the major downfall of the whole design is you got to take your pants off to to get it on right and if you don't get it on right um, when you go to draw the whole thing is coming out uh, you're not going to be able to yank it from the, the holster however when you do all that right what it allows you to do is one not wear a belt if you don't want to I usually wear one, but, um, and with a smaller gun like this, uh, 230, 
I mean, it, the the piece disappears like nothing. Nothing even comes close. And I've tried Dark Star, which is good. Um, JM Custom Kydex, which is probably my favorite, probably the you know the best of um, of what's available. But um, again, no sponsorship. That's the end of the commercial. So tonight I wanted to try and speak um, about Portland by way of a man named Alan Savory. And um, as I've mentioned before, I uh, born and raised in Portland, seventh or eighth generation. I've never been quite sure. Family came over in 1846 um, on the Oregon Trail. I've tried to see who, I've tried pretty hard to, to see um, who led them. And uh, nobody famous, apparently. And they missed Jim Bridger by like a month. Um, I guess at Fort Bridger. I forget the research now. They made it to Oregon, and um, the two oldest brothers cut south, taking the Applegate Trail through southern Oregon, uh, my old home. I left Portland in uh, 2009, 2010, something like that, and um, went a few places and then wound up back for most of the last decade in Southern Oregon, which is its own very unique place. Um, anyway, these guys, the Trollinger brothers, uh, passed through there on their way to the gold rush where they were successful. They came back with a small fortune, I think forty or $50,000 worth of gold in 1846. They got their their land grants and they they worked it so that um, I think it was 160 acres, but if you were married, it was twice that. And if you could just do plot next to your brother's plot next to your brother's plot, you could add it up pretty quick. And they must have bought some. They had many thousands of acres of. Uh, farm and timberland out near um, McMinnville where I uh, had occasion to spend one very interesting year of my life uh, which is totally not pertinent to this story but it's a, it's a nice place if you um, if you get the chance to go out there vineyards and some um, some interesting monasteries, and uh, it's got a nice flavor, uh, character. And anyway, they were set up in that area, Clackamas County, Multnomah County. There are a few monuments still. Uh, a couple of the farms are still around. But by the time my mom uh, arrived on Earth, um, most of any consolidation or 
just family consolidation even, um, to say nothing of the wealth and uh, the many operations, sawmills, etc. Um, all that was gone. And um, if we do get to talk to uh, Mr. Lafon, this would be a, maybe an interesting, I don't know how interested he would be, but I know he's very familiar with this area. And my sense of it at that time is that um, it was German uh, and a fair bit of Scandinavian. Um, my mother's side is evidently kind of a kind of muddish as a lot of us are, but they claimed um, Prussian or Swiss or Swiss German, etc. And I'd be curious to know about that, that little brief window of history and how the, all that was squandered. But, of course, we kind of know. Uh, the consolidation started to kick in, um, you know. And, it, of course, now, um, if we shoot forward to my coming of age, say, in the, like, late 80s, early 90s, almost all of the like small-time family logging operations and fishing operations were long gone. And I don't think that the spotted owl had as much to do with that as um, big money, warehouser, and some of these others. Um, anyway, I really want to bring this back to Mr. Alan Savory um, to kind of provide a per, uh, an angle, a point of view. It's something I think about pretty often. So Alan Savory is, um, I think he's in his 90s now. He um, was born in Rhodesia and he joined their version of kind of like fish and game I think it was blended somewhat with what we would think of as like park rangers and um, spent a lot of time in a middle class farm farm slash ranching situation I don't know that they have the strict division in uh, farming and ranching that that we tend to have out here in the west and the war came, and he joined the army, moved into very quickly what was their version, the Rhodesian version of special forces, and was tasked with creating the first modern combat tracking unit, which he accomplished, and... Um, Maybe in the, you know, in the first uh, paid episode, I will dig out for subscribers. Uh, the ultra rare, never published essay that Alan wrote about that time, um, about his creation of the Rhodesian combat tracking unit. He goes into weapons, he goes into gear, um, 
web gear, stuff like that, creating new stuff um, for the operations that that they were doing. Pretty interesting read. And I've met Alan and I have, I consider him a mentor, uh, certainly. And uh, we've corresponded now for quite a few years, maybe maybe close to a decade. So that's worth mentioning uh, as I kind of launch into this. But um, as the story goes, um, you know, the war was pretty well fucked from the, from the beginning. And um, I don't think that he knew that. And even today, I'm not sure that he's sorted everything out. Um, his life takes a turn, which we'll get to. So he um, he runs the the tracking unit for several years and sets up the training pipeline and all of that the training the techniques the tactics was eventually transferred more south to South Africa the country. Um, Sulu Scouts and Kafut, who are the kind of real legendary, um, you know, when you think, when I, anyway, when I think of combat tracking, those are the three. And of course, um, Kafut doesn't get as much, quote, airtime as the other two. However, uh, John Hurth, who runs or ran, I'm not sure what the state of uh, tier group is right now, but I worked with John and um, for several years and in varying capacities. And um, John, is, John, I was about to say was, because tracking is the kind of thing where you drop it for six months and you gotta, you gotta train for a month to in whatever particular AO you are in to get back up to speed. But it, it goes, it, it's faster than some other perishable type skills. Um, and again, I'm not sure John's status right now, but um, great tracker. And I learned an enormous amount from John. And his opinion on Kafoot was that um, in their way, they, they ran down more dudes and created more mayhem in a good way than um, than Sulu scouts and who knows they 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 just don't get as much attention. I read one book on them and um, they were hardcore for sure. Anyway, back to Allen in the Rhodesian War. Um, he gets pulled into Parliament. He becomes a member of Parliament. And uh, my understanding is that he was kind of pulled in, that he was not drafted exactly, but um, he was he was dra- he was recruited. We'll say that. And um, his life very quickly takes a series of of shitty turns. I think um, he leaves the army. He does a very short tour of duty, if you will, in government politics, and then he's exiled. 
and um, he winds up in Australia and Europe and uh, a couple of other places and eventually comes to America and um, by this time he's working on what I think he's he will be known for um, which is what he calls holistic management and this is a a school of thought applied to a military school of thought adapted um, heavily adapted and expanded and then applied to ranching when he came to America he he contracted with the BLM Bureau of Land Management as well as private ranchers on the problem of desertification and the real crux of his thinking is that in order to combat desertification you need more animals and the buffalo he cites the buffalo he also cites, um, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of cases where he's proved this to be true. Um, the unique way that ruminant herd animals uh, act upon the land in terms of how their hoofed feet um, till and how much they nibble of the grass. Do they take it right down to the nub or do they just take an inch and move on? All of this plays in and with the buffalo, of course, the wolves play in because they are just harrying these massive, you know, uh, what, millions of tons of animal um, over the plains. And, you know, yeah, that's gonna have an effect. Um, and, you know, he's shown conclusively that using various factors of animal density, time, and space, um, as well as a bunch of other stuff, uh, ranchers will get pissed if you slide them on, on how complex this is. And it, it does get pretty dicey. But suffice to say, you uh, balance all these factors and you you ultimately get more animals on the ground and um, this kickstarts everything from the soil biome to uh, the soil it retains more water um, they are dumping their nutrients through urine and feces right back onto the land and anyway if you check it out it's it's very interesting it's um it's hard to say where it lands with the elites. They've they've entertained him a bit, but um, he still takes a lot of flack. And um, having met the guy later in life, and um, you know, I guess at this at that stage he wasn't um, an official exile, but. Um, He's lost multiple children, you know. He's he's lost at least one marriage um, in all of the fighting. I think his, some of his family moved to South Africa and maybe some remained in, you know, what becomes Zimbabwe. But 
He's a man, I have great respect for him. Very intelligent, very tough, um, super wiry, maybe six feet tall. And, um, I mean, last time I saw him, you know, he was, I guess, like late 80s. And uh, compared to, say, your average American boomer, he would have been more like a 60-year-old, 65-year-old boomer. Um, so being being likewise harried uh, in his way, you know, over the globe, um, I think it, it sparked a fire in him, which probably extended his life, and and that's all for the good. And he has returned. He's got um, a ranch, a good-sized ranch, back down there, which I think I just mentioned. But he visits, runs the Savory Institute, and I suppose the point of bringing him up is to say that I mean, we all know that the southern tip of Africa is in many ways maybe a model for what will happen in other areas on the globe. And um, I think it'll be much, much different. You take my meaning. There'll be be points of contrast and uh, aspects that happen much, much faster, most likely. So, which brings me um, to Portland, back to Portland. Um, As mentioned, I'd left in uh, 2010-ish and um, went to the East Coast for a bit and returned to the West Coast, a few places in between, and um, spent the the next 10 years in southern oregon hardly i think i visited portland twice during that time um was when everything set was set up i i guess i could go back farther and we can make an argument that it was set up before that um we'll just speak from my experience portland was still very habitable um and very much still the this kind of strange place that wasn't Seattle, it wasn't San Francisco. Um, you could go anywhere, you could do anything. There were a few somewhat rough parts of town. Historically speaking, um, the downtown area, you have the downtown and the metro where the suburbs are all surrounding. And even now, according to friends there, Once you leave downtown, there's zero threat. Um, The worst thing you're going to run into is bad weather or just ideological liberal turds who aren't going to give you a hard time. They don't care. And the videos that we see coming from downtown where you have these homeless camps, that showed up as far as I know, uh, within maybe the last five years. There were always like small encampments, but 
nothing on this scope, um, which is way, way out of hand. When I was there in 2019, uh, in 20, part of 2018, the camps had sprung up on the little green spaces, uh, on the off ramps and on ramps of, um, the freeways that run through the center of town, the city. And in this way, I gather that the bums are able to make access to their goods uh, a little more difficult, a little more treacherous, which is pretty smart, actually. Um, but the, the little encampments downtown are essentially like open-air latrines where you can smell the piss and shit from two blocks away with no wind. And at that time, people were not shooting up in the streets. You know, that was, I think it's directly tied in with everything that happened with the governor, the mayor, the new DA they got there, some absolute piece of shit from, uh, with like a, some socialist legacy. I can, it's not the Alinsky's, I can never remember, but he's a real piece of work and they're, they are definitely all in cahoots on something. And it's sad that the entire state is um, under management of these people because right when you get to the edge of town, um, in, in almost every, any direction, if you head towards Hillsboro, it'll take you a little longer. If you head towards Clackamas County, it's immediate that you're confronted with Americans, you know, who are like, uh, they're just conservative Americans with monster trucks and Trump hats and everything else. And um, I would say that they definitely dominate the suburbs. Um, overall, there are a couple suburbs that are that are pretty swishy, but um, that's just in the just directly surrounding Portland. So drive, say, a half hour. Um, East, west, south. North, you hit the river right away, and now you're into Washington. So skip that. But, um, you know, even the little hinterlands um, heading towards the coast, Astoria, um, are going to be pretty mixed. But once you are um, out of Portland, you know, you'd go two hours south to Eugene. That's another hotbed always has been but the entire rest of the state is just bleeding trump uh red and um now more than ever because they know they're in conflict right i really wanted to say something about the good parts of portland um so like what's lost and uh it seems to me that an enormous amount of really good stuff has been lost. There were obviously, you do the math, and there were it's a pretty good con contingent of, of shit libs prior you know, to, to the last five, 10 years. It was always classical, liberal, um, and that did extend out 
the way it does, you know, um, in terms of politics, the classical liberal could always find something to agree with, um, with the rancher, <clears throat> which kind of pacified everything. Um, that and it has to be stated that I would say up until very, very recently, Oregon as a whole was almost entirely homogenous white. Very small um, black community in, uh, in Portland. And then that's virtually, that's literally it. Uh, and, you know, that held everything together really well. Um, in 2010, when I left, I'd go back to like 2004. I would say there was a noticeable, I did live in the city at that time. Um, pretty young, young man, you know, 29, 28, 30 ish, not married. Um, but you, I mean, it was hard not to notice a pretty serious influx of what seemed to be all Midwesterners. Um, and I think these were the, maybe the black sheep from their families, maybe they had heard about Gus Van Zandt or the West Coast art scene in general, or, um, you know, maybe Seattle was a little bit too intimidating, but Portland looked doable. I don't know. Um, but at that time you didn't have any big bands, you know, you did have Chuck Palahniuk Fight Club and Gus Van Zandt, but, um, you know, each contributed some, some pretty decent stuff dis despite, uh, other things I might quibble with them on or, or just straight out avoid them for, but at that time there was an influx and prior to that growing up in the as I said, in the 80s and um, 70s, I was alive, but kind of, you know, still pretty out of it. Um, but all growing up, you'd hear about Californians. And so that was always a factor, but it didn't seem to be real, real serious. After the Midwesterners came and I left, I think that's when... Um, the Californian, like, like the second wave of them showed up and probably a bunch of New Yorkers showed up and a bunch of everybody showed up because by the time that I rolled back in there in uh, late, I can never get 2018 and then through to 2019, I believe, um, housing prices were radically different, um, super boutique types of grocery stores and um, loft buildings, million dollar apartments and all that had sprung up. And for a little piece of history about uh, Gus Van Zandt, Drugstore Cowboy, really a pretty decent movie um, based on a pretty decent book. Matt Dillon, William Burroughs, I think, makes an appearance. Anyway, that was filmed in Portland. And um, 
I recall going to, not necessarily as like a Mecca thing, just sort of more like looking up and somebody pointing out, hey, that's the house in um, Drugstore Cowboy. Like, no shit, you're right, that is. And it was, this would have been early 90s, I think. Yeah, early 90s. Um, it was just run down. I mean, it's it's in a part of town now that... Um, certainly someone's fixed it up and it's worth somewhere between like it's probably worth two million bucks um like an old victorian or craftsman i'm not sure in um in the north in the northwest quadrant but that house when he made that movie in the mid to late 80s i believe that whole neighborhood was a shithole and it was surrounded by uh more shithole so fast forward again to 2010, um, the whole stage was set for the implosion that we saw surrounding, you know, Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all these other fags. And that set up, you know, Another part of that, it does go back because in the WTO era, which is Seattle, um, 1990, I believe, there were some big riots surrounding that. And to say that that was Seattle, though, would be incorrect because those uh, anarchist uh, ELF, types of groups they ran from Berkeley up to Seattle and everywhere in between you know in the in their kind of uh, drug addled itinerant um, uh, sexual predator you know sort of lifestyle um, coming and going and mixing and mingling and then you know this group became that group etc so it was it was there was a continuity up and down between in those big towns um and the reason i know that is not because i was ever involved with any of them though i did uh, find myself involved in a riot or two in eugene um which which is neither here nor there uh but it was a pretty good time to be honest and um the reason I actually know this is um, because those people were running bookstores and uh, operating their zines and um, you know selling fatty burritos or whatever else they did um, to facilitate the lifestyle. Those that were not on the on the government uh, dole at that point, but. It suffice to say there was this undercurrent that um, existed there and that this is not unique to the West Coast you know that exists as far as I can gather in uh, places on the East Coast for sure maybe Chicago to a lesser extent but you know it was like these groups this guy who's the DA in Portland uh, 
whatever family he's attached to that I cannot for the life of me recall now, it's something on par with the Alinsky's, uh, Saul Alinsky and all this. Those people working with whoever they do at the higher, the, the trillionaire or billionaire class, um, they set their, you know, they took their time and they, they, they did the groundwork for, for what became of Portland and, and what everyone saw in the news. I see, I keep skipping the good parts. <laughs> so let's go back to that real quick. Um, having lived in um, Austin and uh, spent a lot of time in California, Washington, all the western states, um, some of the better uh, cities on in like the mid-Atlantic I'm fairly familiar with, meaning like months and months and months at a time. Um, I would say that Portland at its height had some of the best food anywhere. Um, and because, well, there's so much of it, you know, the prices were always pretty decent. It wasn't like walking into Laguna Beach and um, you say, oh man, these people have organic pastrami on um, artisanal rye, but it's $19 for a half a sandwich. It was it was just always affordable. It wasn't as much of a lifestyle thing as it was more tightly woven into, quote, normal folks who shop at Safeway, etc. Some of you guys might not know what Safeway. I think Safeway is nationwide, but James LaFon will certainly know uh, about Safeway. Anyway, food, um, music some there some big bands um kind of, I guess I wasn't into any of that shit by then but um you know they popped out of Portland later in that period when I was gone but prior to that you could go to any quadrant in the city and you could get like like a humble um working man but eminently talented anything you wanted, whether it was jazz or punk or um, blues, you know, pop, you name it, whatever your thing was, maybe not reggae, but, um, you know, you could find it. It was easily accessible and it wasn't a big, big, big kind of narcissistic, um, never ending party that it was, it was definitely becoming that by say, 2004 um they were regentrifying a couple of areas one of which was called mississippi street and that neighborhood i forget what the neighborhood every fucking neighborhood has a name whether that that neighborhood is two streets or 22 streets that it was as when i was a kid growing up you know i'm from portland my parents are from portland grandparents we don't that that's not a big deal like we weren't really attached to it it's just 
an incidental sort of historical um, anachronism or what have you that's held on. And you just refer to it mostly for identification purposes. Um, whereas by the time back to 2004 or so, this was a status thing and Mississippi Street was a status thing. And I happened to live there at that time, not for the status. I had actually been gone then to Utah and returned and I wasn't really aware of this stuff, but the, the price on the room was right and I found myself living there and got to kind of watch this gentrification um, whatever the word would be for um, if we gentrify something but we we apply almost entirely hipsters um, a sprouting of hipsterdom or that's not very good but something like this was what what was happening and uh, it was pretty interesting to watch um, and there were some advantages um, bars that never closed or you know, bars that didn't really care if they charged you for every drink or, um, well, you know, the truth is all of the, um, sort of concomitant vice and mindset that accompanies, uh, hedonism, you know, was available. So as a young single man, you can bet I was partaking regretfully now, of course, but um that that all just goes hand in hand you know that's another another thing that might be worth noting again we're back to the bad side right away but it wasn't you know like um real straight um clean cut developers at the forefront which was, again, maybe it was kind of, in my lifetime, there was a laxity and there's this hangover from the 60s that never quite left, but it was always balanced with enough work ethic and enough um, these other qualities that will hold a society together or what, you know, remnant of them we had then and barely might have now there was enough of it that it was a good place it was safe at least um and uh you could get a lot done um if you wanted to i got a lot out of my my childhood i am pretty lucky for that and um i guess another real big thing about portland that drew a lot of those midwesterners out was um the proximity to truly epic wilderness. I have spent enormous amounts of time in some of the most beautiful places in America, um, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, North Carolina. I've been, you know, I've lived in Texas and plenty of other places. Um, and while each of those places, you know, sure has their, their unique thing that one person might prefer and another wouldn't, Oregon has, um, I would say for sure, the most ecosystems. They have 
genuine rainforest. We have um, like authentic sand dunes, the ocean, um, high desert, weird lake lands, truly epic um, mountain forests. And you have variety. You know, down south it's very hot. In the summer it's much more dry. But it's, and it's very rugged. Um, so in theory, a lot of these Midwesterners came to partake of, you know, two hours from Portland, you've got um, stunning, uninhabited, largely uninhabited coastline. Nothing like what, the East Coast, I'm sorry, but... Um, if you're from the East Coast and you go to the Oregon coast, you, you will be pleased. Um, there's nobody there. It's way more dramatic. Um, and it's just, trust me, much, much, much better. Um, and then, you know, the Midwesterner sort of, um, wannabe, the other idea would be to go two hours back east into the Cascades and go, you know, get, grab yourself some world-class skiing. Most of these pursuits never really happened. Um, they take to the drinking and now the Tinder or whatever. And still to this day, um, not this day, but the last day that I was there, um, there's nothing like the traffic in the outdoors that you would find in lots of parts of California, certainly the big name places like Yosemite, etc. And same with the beaches. As far as the future of this, it's very interesting uh, city. And the question for me remains, even though all that setup is kind of observable and Maybe some of the tinder was placed there long ago. Maybe it's partly genetic in terms of the white guilt and whatnot. And everything just kind of um, a confluence of things came together there. I tend to, I have a hard time buying that. And I'm not saying that these architects of events are as artistic as what you know I'm going to suggest but in some ways this is sort of like Hoffman's um, or Shelby uh, Shelby Downard's mystical toponymy which we haven't gone into yet but we're definitely going to get into but Hoffman picked up Downard's theory and kind of ran it forward and spun off some much 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 more elaborate and interesting and well-founded stuff, but um, you'll understand if I say where I did like the second half of my childhood outside of the city in a suburb was right across the Willamette River from the quote end of the Oregon Trail. And there was a museum down there. Um, Oregon City is the, the little town there. And um, you could see it over the river, and uh, it was kind of a anticlimactic or inexplicable thing to 
to be in high school and, and understand. So that, that's manifest destiny. That's it. That's where it, that's where it ends. Why? Like, why didn't um, Los Angeles, something like that, spring up there? Oregon City was always very run down. Now, of course, you know, none of us could afford uh, a house in Oregon City. But back then, it was kind of a shithole. And um, it, it was also kind of nice in, in some ways. And um, I don't mean to bag on it. But, but um, it certainly didn't have the grandeur or, or anything to go along with something like manifest destiny. So it's curious that, to me, the the fireworks, at least, or the the pyrotechnics of the the real grinding, probably next decade of you know to stomp this country into the fucking ground, kind of started right there. And uh, many of those fires that were started you know, not this last summer, but the, the COVID summer. I had friends reporting that those were absolutely um, black-clad, blue-haired turds. Uh, I don't know. They're probably too stupid to jack a car, so whether they borrowed a friend's Kia and um, got a, you know a milk jug full of gasoline and then dumped it in the dry grass. That's probably exactly what they did. But um, something like that, you know, that would have been almost exactly this area, Oregon City, the end of the Oregon Trail, that my ancestors and many, many other peoples, I'm not saying that this is some special to me thing. Many, many people's ancestors made that arduous journey um, losing lives, losing limbs, losing all kinds of shit and um, I am one of those people you know that I, I am exiled um, and I feel akin to my friend Alan Savory uh, at this point uh you know, maybe the drama is a little bit less in scale. However, um, the story is not over yet. Um, and I think in the end, I think most of you guys would probably agree, we're probably going to outdo everything that um, Africa ever pulled off in terms of mayhem, madness, uh, weirdness, blood and gore. Um, Africa is big and they do have some uh, some serious genocides so maybe it'll be a good run but I'm not sure yet alright I'm going to take a break and um, drink some water fondle my weapons to uh, recharge my batteries and then I'm going to come back and move on to death work The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, to the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Death work is a pretty tough thing to... I don't want to reduce it down to a set of exercises, at least not yet. I can, but I think that there's like an emotional journey, or maybe emotional is the wrong word, an interior type of journey, and probably just some life experience that's required before um, even the few people that would ever um, be able, be deep enough, or with a general predilection towards going into it and gaining something from it. Death work, I think a lot of people use this term to talk about essentially um, comforting people who are dying. And I can't really think of anything um, harder to do than that, or probably less rewarded. I think about, I have cause right now, because of where I'm at, to think about the boomers and... Um, the tens or it's tens of millions of them coming to the end of their lives and parsing out their cash at the grocery store so that they have enough at the end to be comfortable or whatever they foresee for themselves but there's going to be a really um, substantial run on death, and uh, pretty quick. And um, you know, I I hope for the boomers the best. I happen to have some family that are in that generation. I do not admire the generation in the slightest. And I, I doubt I'm alone in, in having the sense that a lot of what our generations and uh, those, that are, those that are after us 
are going to have to endure or rebuild or figure out is it didn't all come down to the boomers. I mean, this thing's been going on for a long, long time. However, there were some critical choices, uh, quite a few of them, that on every single count were dog shit. So. There's not going to be a lot of death work um, of this first variety, you know, where you're... Um, you're caring for someone in their last days or weeks or moments for the boomers and um, there's definitely not going to be a lot of the death work the variety of which that um, I'm hoping to discuss uh, in the future um, and establish some type of theoretical and practical framework around So another way of thinking of this, maybe the most simple, is simply grieving. And uh, I have a friend who goes by the name of John Mosby that a few of you guys might be aware of. He had, I think he still has the blog called uh, Mountain Gorilla. And I trained with John, and um, I like John a lot, and he's been a friend to me. And at a particularly crucial moment, I remember he said that grief is real. Grief's a real thing. And uh, if you guys have been reading the posts, you know, I have this tendency to go to some length to um, obscure the lines between what is real or what we think of as real and what may, may be another kind of real, you know, or may just be uh, supernatural. Um, and that's intentional, and I'm going to keep doing it. And um, So what did John mean by real? Um, I think it's a good example of this kind of third substance that I'm um, fascinated with and... Uh, I say substance because it's it's like ectoplasm or something. It's it's neither material nor non-material. Um, similar to the fascia that we've talked about a little bit, building up and causing havoc in your body. Um, you can tear up that fascia but you can't necessarily, despite the lacrosse ball or the um, massage, etc., find the origin of it. And yet it, it will return. If you have like a recurring muscular or uh, musculoskeletal type of injury in your low back, say, you can rub that knot down to the point where you've really, I mean, you've taken it down 60-70% or more till it's almost gone, and it will return. And um, if you go into the research on it, it's hard to figure out. Um, does anybody know what, what the fuck is really going on here? Because 
I think the hippies um, and the herbalists and the shaman types are closer to the truth that this neural pathway, this trauma loop, and the nerve connections, um, the communication that's happening between that injured site in your brain and your brain running, you know, the memory of the trauma through it. The brain itself evidently has some type of um, material synaptic type of um, content. However, it also seems to have some pretty obviously electrical or energetic um, content. And how that's all stored is unknown. So I feel like I'm in, in, in on firm ground to say, or firm enough ground to say that grief pretty closely related to traumas. And, you know, I mean, if you have trauma of one sort, you can definitely have grief. If you have trauma of another, you might have grief, but it's that grief is of a different variety. And, uh, the way that we grieve is interesting. Um, in King of Dogs, I stated that, uh, Grayson had a lot of skill, a lot of cunning, a lot of um, Odysseus's type of qualities, if you will, and um, yet he could not weep. And that was a reference to an orthodox thing. And it was to make a point as well to say that this was, a, this is a character who Who's gonna, to him, he's clearly intelligent and open-minded enough to accept that, as John Mosby says, grief is real. And he's not going to overlook that. Um, and he has some grief, as readers come to find. Um, and he's dealing with it. And so, your basic therapeutic model, um, which is, to their credit, you know they they have expanded a lot. I think if you were to go to the right place, you could you could probably get a pretty uh, wide and pretty deep um, understanding of what you're going through and some tools and etc. But my understanding is that um, in cultures outside of the, of the West and in older versions of our culture, I am a man of, you know, quote, the West. I am a, I'm a white man, so this is the culture I identify with. I don't identify with America, necessarily, though I'm an American, and yeah, a lot of American stuff is great, and I do identify it. You get the point. A lot of these cultures had... Uh, methods and uh, approaches to grief that would melt faces now. Um, in one particular culture I'm thinking of, 
if you were to just stumble off and decide to get drunk every day for four or five months and pass out at the edge of the waves of the shore, you know, the ocean, that was, that was fine, you know. Um, apparently, the community would swing through and make sure that, um, let's see if this makes the sound better. Is that better? Yeah. Apparently the, uh, I forgot my microphone. Um, you know, the community understood that you needed this sense of abandon to to get to wherever you needed to get to. And that's a question. Where do you need to get to? And I think where you need to get to is like back to life. Because having experienced uh, what some would say is the height of potential grief and uh, gone for it, you know, uh, cut all the ties and did it myself. Unlike Grayson, my character, my hero. Um, I would, I would, I am of the opinion that What's really happening, and I mean really happening, back to this reference to real, you know, multiple substances, the scientific version, the non-material version, which also accepts that there's some type of, you know, in orthodoxy, we just say that these distinctions are unnecessary. We approach them other ways, you know. There are realms and principalities and powers and some of that language is very similar to um, dimensions, portals, uh, planes. And even in pretty traditional scientific stuff, I mean, clearly in, in physics, uh, we have dimensions. How many we have might be up for debate. Um, and in the psychological literature, I think the subconscious is pretty fully accepted. So with that in mind, in reference to grieving, what I think is happening when one is actually grieving, not burying it, not gonna get to it, but is on now, is a stretching of that person between these two worlds. There's some part of us that wants to go with the dead, that wants to not have to endure this state of getting up and never speaking to that person again. The remorse, uh, the regret, the things left unsaid, These, to me, do not line up on any type of consumer scale. Um, Maslow's hierarchy 
you know, that's some pretty vague shit. And yeah, we can stuff it in there at the top with self-actualization, I suppose, but that's not clear enough. That's not enough for me to, to roll on. So, um, I go with this version and to say that death work is, is like grieving, I hope is a simple transition because the essence of death work, say when you're not actually grieving and you could definitely do my version or this version. I don't know that it's mine or I discovered it. Um, in either case, but let's say that you are not grieving and you are going to engage in this death, death work. And I think what you're doing is, first of all, you know, going back to the mold, hopefully you've, you've weighed this and you've considered it and maybe you've come up with a similar term or you have another conception of it and that's all fine. In my terms, um, you know, you've stretched the mold out so that, you know, Peterson calls this one of the big five traits of open-mindedness and a lot of that sort of clinical psychological stuff just strikes me as arbitrary labeling. And I don't think that Peterson intends to be that way, but some of the box that the guy finds himself in um, might be explained by the boxes in which he works. And uh, hopefully if someone wins the uh, grand prize, uh, the Golden Goat Guild um, giveaway, you know, we can have an opportunity to have Dr. Peterson on the podcast or I'll go on his and we'll really find out where the rubber meets the road. I keep trying. You guys help me out on that. I would appreciate it. Um, anyway, the back from that detour is to say that, you know, if you've stretched the mold to this point where you've gained some openness and, uh, at least in how your identity works, what you're willing to identify with, what you're willing to contemplate. And um, to go back to orthodoxy, to me, one of the reasons I love it is that the church itself acknowledges this need to not presume an answer to every one of life's difficult questions. Um, there are sacred mysteries and uh, perennial paradox that are upheld. And this, to me, is the way to go. And so I'm trying to use that to explain if you've, if you've flexed, you know, you've worked on flexing your mold, thinning it, to where you have more space to move. Um, and again, physically, psychically, with your reason, uh, maybe most importantly, um, then you've probably already found that, and you can find this other ways, but we live in a, you know, kind of a, a constant state of, um, 
a form of routine, you know, loops and, and routines and habits and such, and duties and family and work all play into this. But I don't think that just pawning it off on duties and responsibilities and families is acceptable. You know, the culture itself that created these situations uh, where the grind set and, you know, well, I, I work 40 hours a week and God damn it, I'm a good person. I mean, fuck you. How fucking, st- you couldn't get any dumber than that. Any more dumber in the sense that the one does not mean the other. And two, you've accepted that that's the definition of things. And so, in finding a way to flex away from, and by flex I don't mean muscles, you know, I mean flexibility. I mean shift and slide and move away as if you're in the clinch and you're trying to get out of something. That's what, that's what the mold is. The mold is the blob, you know, uh, the blob's a terrible word, but this thing that's constantly moving with you to try and contain you in this cultural slash uh, psychic and then physical box in which we're constantly um, coming up against. Coming up against it in times, for example, when you have to grieve. If no one told you that you can grieve any way you want, there's no right or wrong way to grieve, then presumably that person would either refer to television or movies or what mom and dad had told them. And then, you know, I guess it comes down to what movies you watched and whether or not your parents were dipshits, which is kind of what it comes down to for a lot of people. And I hope that's not the case with anyone listening to this it's it's neither here nor there but having that I think that is the standard by the way psychological uh, mainstream you know accepts that there are these different ways to grieve but this missing cultural aspect is key and it's huge because to be able to sort of rest in that and know that people are going to be there for you, that there are these byways and roads um, that you can take, that you can wander on in your pain, in the pain of, as I said, remorse, uh, loss. You know, in many cases, you've had an, an idea, you've invested maybe a good portion of your whole life into something and then it's just torn away from you in one moment there's a lot of intangible loss that happens there and how do you account for that you know who do you go to to justify that and i think that the old cultural ways including orthodoxy for me but again i'm not here to um speak on behalf of that or for that I just have found that and other religions have you know have good the older traditional ways have avenues um, and a form of 
like a circumscribing an area, you know, penning them in, but letting them roam as they go through their own personal hell. And um, I tried to reference this in the in the text that I wrote on the subject for um, on Patreon in this idea that what we may need is a sort of embrace that's large enough to contain the paradox of of in a in a manner of speaking existing in two places at once and with multiple versions of things the version of how it could have turned out of how it did turn out of how it would turn out if you had the gift of um, either turning back time or crossing the river Styx or whatever you needed to do to disregard the less logical, less quote possible is not helpful to the grieving. And to be clear, I am not advocating with with death work or, you know, with grief to um, to just run wild and reckless. If anything, I, I hope I've gone to some lengths to reiterate that in this version of this approach, this code requires you don't even get on the road if you cannot evidence precision, control, sobriety in the face of extreme stress. That shit's all real easy when it's sunny and when there's money in the bank, uh, etc. But you're talking about a whole different person. You're talking about the warrior at that point in my terms. So if we presume that everyone listening to this is on that road or a similar road, I'm, I'm the guy talking about open-mindedness, so I'm not trying to hem you in to my cult. I'm just saying these are the terms I use to perform this act of communication. So work with me on this stuff. In doing death work... Uh, in the sense that it's like grieving. Maybe the main takeaway to this is that, one, you're already going to grieve the way things might have been. Um, if the world were to go on, and again, the elites just disappear tomorrow, and Trump returns, and an economy is amazing, or Richard Nixon crawls out from the grave and who, whatever the fantasy would be, um, you're still going to have regret for the way that things could have gone. And that may be on a personal level, have nothing to do with the macro events around uh, surrounding us. And again, it may have to do with those macro events. Maybe those are the currents in which you play. And when we're talking about this yearning of another way, you know, um, 
what we're talking about is in reference to the, our previous discussion about the dissociation between the emotional and logical or reasoning centers. As those two start to approach each other again and the reasoning is not you know, in control and the other one is not in control and they're, they're themselves communicating. I think that the word feelings that a lot of us have a um, justified distaste for after many years of having it crammed down our throats and feminized is, is a, a set of human experience more closely aligned with pure being or instinct and from there if you'd followed the trail you'd you'd get farther and farther away from reason into you know issues of um von neumann's fecundity and some really dark bloodlusty sort of stuff pretty quick um you know, in the like historical timeline of of man or being or what whatever we want to call it, and in these terms, that's there's no need to go that far because if we sit down to contemplate our lives as as they are, shorn of. Uh, as much vanity as possible. Essentially, you're going to live, you know, you'll be born, you live, you die. And um, just simply by that fact of dying, we arrive back at the, the case where there's stuff you didn't get to do, people you didn't get to meet, things you didn't get to say. And that's all just super generic until somebody that you love or something that you have given 10, 20, 50, 60 years to is wiped away on the wind, never ever to be returned, all of a sudden that generalization, uh, you know, what we want it to do is come into sharp focus instead of what I think normally happens is we are overwhelmed, um, which is likewise normal in the first stages of acute grief. I think a lot of men are living in a state of like sublimated acute grief for the loss of the heroic or adventurous or just honorable and decent life that they partly they played a role in shit canning but I too partly was shit canned for them without a context you don't have a story without a story you don't have a hero etc so anyone who tells you this shit that you see by the the grifters on the internet, like you're responsible for every last thing, extreme ownership. 
just walk away. I mean, do whatever you want, but that's what I do. Like, shut the fuck up. If you can't, if your brain is not big enough to wrap your head, or you are so solipsistic or narcissistic that that's, that's your description of reality, then this conversation is over, sir. Because, as I like to say, did you invent dirt? So if you live in a world where you invented the circumstances in which you found yourself and you're responsible fully for the outcome, and the, then I just, I'm just curious, did you also invent dirt, and how the fuck did you do that? No, you didn't invent dirt, you didn't invent the sky. This is all contingent upon something greater than ourselves. And this very fact of contingency brings about humility. And in that humility, I think is found the opportunity to more deeply contemplate um, these facts. Because a lot of gurus and stuff I've found will also tell you, well, if you've gotten that far and, well, so you're going to regret stuff, well, you better do it. You better cash out your bank account and uh, <laughs> go to China or, you know, go see Mount Rushmore or whatever your little dream is. And then all of a sudden, you know, bait switch commercialization of the sacred has occurred before your very eyes and now you should be ashamed and in a way now you should just fucking accept the the full responsibility for your for your thing i mean maybe 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 they'd need help too i don't i don't know but i hope that, i hope we make this point clearly that despite whatever effort you put in there's this opportunity for grief and that and that's just in relation to your own interiority your own personal hopes dreams desires beliefs values to say nothing of what fate is going to serve up for you along the way that will then feed back onto all of those foundational pieces of yourself So with this phrase that I came up with, like, uh, breath work is death work. What's hopefully communicated in this is that by doing breath work, you're repairing your central nervous system from the extant trauma that you are, you are living with. Even if you've had a perfectly lovely life and you married the prom queen and you have six kids, you were raised in a, in a videodrome, as uh, Michael Hoffman puts it, um, and a constant state of psychological warfare. And you're probably more fucked up than anybody that else we're going to find if you believe that your life is perfect. You know, this is like the, the classic case of... Uh, the Jenners, the Kardashians, all these types of people. I mean, wow, right? 
um, you're going to get a lot more solidarity and heart and wisdom from from many bums than you are going to get from these people. And that's well known too, you know. Um, it's more difficult for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for the rich man to get to heaven, okay? Case closed as far as I'm concerned. Not that wealth isn't good, not that I'm, you know, trying to monetize my own thing to put food into my family, but on a then the next level of abstraction that we're studying here, all of a sudden there's some truth to this. So in breath work, you are repairing your level of trauma and you're reassociating these two centers of communication within yourself. These these are centers, right? These are important pieces. You have others like memory and the subconscious, etc. Probably a bunch that we don't even know about. But these are the ones that seem to be available. And as with our breath, you know, we have some access to them. And um, when you get yourself to a point in your building of Batman where the coming and going of the breath is kind of on a par with say when you're watching your dog when he's near traffic or when you're watching your kid where he's you know standing near a balcony or something to where it is important then you will find that these centers are starting to reassociate and with that you know can come all sorts of stuff um which is maybe hopefully where um i i humbly hope this and uh, this will provide some value. Um, other things can definitely provide value. Um, as these centers start to communicate, in yoga they say, you know, if things rise to the surface, by things they mean difficult thoughts, uh, intense emotion, etc. You know, identify them and you can come back to them and you can let them pass for now, or or they'll say like, uh, you know, you can sit with them. I suppose what they mean by this is, you know, you can sort of zone out from your surroundings and and focus inwardly now, and that's fine. What I have found, this may be worth noting, is that you are able to come back to it later. Um, I think there's a sense sometimes that if you don't experience this this uh, some profound wave this may be a feature of the over feminization of modernity uh i may not be but take my take my trust me on this you can identify something as long as you really identify it and you really mean to go back to it and then you can go back to it use your breath to calm and you can you can visit that thing, that thing, you know. And in so doing, uh, either identifying something in, in any present uh, session that you're doing or 
are coming back to a thing that you previously identified, either case. I think that part of the thing here is that, again, we have part of the mold, part of our culture, part, you know, is pressing us to get on with it and get through it and um, hurry up, you know, got to pay the rent, which is true. Um, There's no question about this. However, I think that if you, if you have the sense of commitment or, uh, which can come from any, a number of other places, right? Like if I don't get it today, I'll just get it tomorrow. If I don't get it tomorrow, I'll be back here the next day too. That mindset is key here because you will get back to it as long as you get back to it. And this is important because as we said originally, the breath and malfunctions of the breath are directly related to these maladaptive avoidance type behaviors. And at root, they do seem to be avoidance behaviors that then manifest later as social dysfunction, uh, addiction, all sorts of other stuff, you know, procrastination, what have you. Um, it can get worse from there. So uh, in avoiding, we have this corollary language of confronting or um, approaching and um that seems to me to be the right um, terminology. And so to try and hone in on this a bit more, you know, what exactly are you approaching? What exactly are you having a confrontation with? And this is a pretty subtle place, but I believe that what you are confronting is probably like both the the gift of life and the tragedy of life or something hopefully we can refine it more than that but you have this eternal type of moment before you the breath rising breath falling and the interiority of yourself thoughts quote things you know uh failures, uh, regrets, trauma, these sorts of things, you know, that's what I mean by things. Like they, if you're groping around in the dark or walking through a large dark place and you, you know, there's stuff over there. I'm just going to not do that today. There's a little bit more light over here. Maybe I'm going to focus on this today, etc. Not a bad approach. I'm not criticizing the approach day to day. You got to do moment to moment, what you got to do interior, exterior, etc., etc. As these things present themselves and as you, with a reasoning mind, can approach them, you know, what do you find? Will you find what we find in Ecclesiastes? Uh, what Castaneda again probably stole from Ecclesiastes um, that you have this sort of shit depressing fact that this is all temporal and it's all like where do I find meaning in this at first when I read this I was like how 
why is this in the Bible? And the key there, I think the reason it's in the Bible is because similarly to the rest of the Bible, it's pointing to something greater, another world, another, a quote being, you know, we don't even use the term being because we don't even know that God is a being. And the way I've found my way around this could be right or wrong. It's just here for fodder is through the philosophical side and pan-entheism, not to be confused with pantheism or 10,000 other variations of the stuff. Pan-entheism, pan like all, theo, God, en, God in all things, is not just, if you meditate on this, eventually you arrive to maybe not a conclusion but a certain state of things Um, and it is as simple as so God is in the cactus well the whole ground of being for the cactus to exist that is space, time gravity all of the myriad unknown and known thousands of parameters for this existence to exist those are all dialed into these precise degree and the ones that need to flex a little bit have that tolerance built in the ones that cannot flex because shit would fall apart do not flex This comes around to indicate that when we say God is in all things, yes, it's in the flowers and the birds and the truck and everything else. The maybe not, you know, we didn't. We created the truck out of these materials that exist. They remain stable. Why? Well, we can go down this endless, shitty. Uh, nightmare recursive thing of trying to justify and always avoiding it that scientism and just you know turn on the news and this is the social human result and it's patently retarded if we avoid that thing it's not even a road I mean it's just a it's like a little loop that these people are spinning until they die so death work is life work as well like what more out there is can be known we're only going to know it if we come to this kind of confrontation with this ever expanding moment where we also realize well This moment feels like that, but I'm also told that there is an end to this and I have witnessed the end, others' ends. So that's this huge gift, you know. You have hopefully cobbled out a little slice of the world. Hopefully it's very safe and hopefully like me you have fine weaponry that you can keep nearby and you have good loving people 
very nearby all the time and you have a nice natural environment that you can look at and walk in whatever hopefully you can experience that moment because the breathing brought the centers together and there's not this violent emotional recoiling away from this disturbing seemingly factual observation that while right now I have this space and this comfort at some point you're telling me or I'm told that this ends and back to the retards you know walking in their dung pen and that that's it that's that's all there is they say they don't believe it and that we don't need to even discuss it anymore in my opinion what i'm hoping to have a discussion about and contribute to with this kind of progression between breath work the mold uncertaintism death work so forth is when you arrive at this confrontation what you actually have is an unknown and to allow other people to label that i again back to petersonian you know or clinical psychological terms i do not believe that placing these boxes for study which may be fine does not demand of us or suggest even that we should then keep those boxes maybe i should just pull what i want dump the rest and keep moving on because maybe that'll be good for 10 miles and then it'll turn to sand again but i want to keep going i want to keep finding while preserving sobriety precision love sorge as uh, Heidegger said which hopefully I can remember to kind of wind this back to to sorge because I think it's um, I think it's the place where you wind up and it's a key concept that one of the greatest uh, arguably or you know one of the greatest thinkers of all time and a pretty interesting guy provided so once again in this potential to have this violent outburst of reaction of avoidance of in the church we say you know directing your anger towards god because and you see this every you know every day i mean somebody is robbed of a loved one and they don't understand why I don't think that it's really great to just slap a platitude on that and and walk away and or or even let some you know half-assed uh clergy person provide you. I think that a real priest is going to look you square in the eye and um empathize if that's possible, you know, to the extent that it is possible. I think that's what the healing of the church provide and then from there you know theological description and etc can 
can allow that person to keep going, which again is kind of kind of of the essence in super uh, grievous moments. So if we imagine a, a, a condition where the conditions of panentheism, simply stated, we'll definitely have to put this in the show notes because my description sure as hell won't suffice, but it's an absolute contingency upon the divine. We do not have, in reality... Um, we should not have the hubris to believe that, well, I'm just going to design my own life. I'm just going to live, laugh, love my way to, uh, you know, be the next Caitlyn fucking Jenner or whatever diabolical sort of insanity uh, is being pumped out late. I really try to avoid it, avoid this stuff, but what we actually have is this contingent state and an absent-minded kind of approach to that because we don't recognize that we're fallen. How deep the fallen aspect of this goes in relation to how deep the um, kind of diabolical spectacle, cathedral, consumerism aspect of it goes and then how how diabolical in the in the basic term of um, demonic you know is that well Hoffman who we're going to get to hopefully soon makes some suggestions which I tend to agree with and I don't think I'm alone in either case we also know that most of that stuff is just hocus pocus abracadabra just cheap tricks and what I'm interested in is not wasting more of my time or my children's lives or confusing them with thinking that the chicanery, the hocus pocus is stuff that they need to endure uh, or approach with any reverence or spend their precious life on at all. And maybe having grown up in Portland, I watched enough real hippies who really were batshit um, push their kids so far out one way that I was able to witness you know if you don't have any of this grounding if you don't have precision if you don't already have probably a few things life experience um, and then you're also without the community well you know those are probably the people wandering the streets of Portland right now and um, talking to their shopping carts or or the like. But there is this wide open quality to the contingent, conditional, panentheistic consideration. And again, this seems to be reaffirmed by the church insofar as we don't define what God is. We, there are prescriptions, like from a doctor, from the church on how to behave in X or Y situation and in general. And that's kind of it. It doesn't say, for example, there are no hidden portals in the world. And uh, if there were, 
you should not ponder them or seek them. It does say stuff about avoiding the demonic and, you know, that might play a role, but could we get to that? Like, could we put a Band-Aid or do triage long enough to open up the vistas of what is possible again? And I'm not, you know, there are a number of people... Jonathan Peugeot, you know, I think is is one who has uh, expressed that it's part of his goal to bring back a sense of reenchantment. I'm in full support of that because that's essentially what I'm talking about. And insofar as death work is is this work and death work is life work, I believe what I mean by this or what is meant by this is that in taking death as your advisor, one, you start to simplify many, many things and you start to buy this space and time that's necessary to heal and then also to contemplate. While simultaneously seizing back the personal power, the full experience of yourself that is possible. So the next stage that first I should say, um, I hope you guys throw up your questions on the stuff. If you find it interesting, if we're going too far out, we're still going to go this far out, but um, you know we can we can turn it more towards the practical considerations. But we're pretty far out now, and um, we I could go farther, but I think that's good enough. Um, however, because this is the Warhorse Podcast, pilot episode four, it's it's worth noting that the other aspect of death work is there's a preparation available to you toward loss by developing resiliency, by developing your own relationship with an idea such as panentheism or your own relationship with God. And but actually developing it would be the key component there. There, you're building the synapses. You're, I mean, where, where else would the reasoning and I like, uh, I guess, emotional center, where else uh, would they be communicating if not there? Um, I think they are. And I think that's part of why the church is a hospital and all of these concepts swirl around and support each other and sort of begin to form like a new or, you know, they formed already. We're just basically hopefully returning to a very firm setting. And uh, maybe the last thing to say on this this state where maybe you're pushing out through the breath work into contemplation and then something like, okay, well, what is in front of me as I'm breathing and dying? 
and as other people are dying around me. Sorge, I think that's how you pronounce it. S-O-R-G-E, I believe is a German term that I picked up from Heidegger. That other people will probably, nobody else seems to uh, have generated as much uh, hyper-dense, super-useless text as uh, the secondary literature on Heidegger. But what I take this term to mean is essentially a kind of human kindness that you extend to appropriate places yourself your loved ones and i wouldn't say i wouldn't go maybe go so far as humanity in general because that's totally theoretical in itself and ends up being a kind of uh more trickery and stuff to be used and leveraged against you you know, you're not going to account for all of humanity, but Sorge arises, I think, out of this infinite sort of sadness that exists within a full contemplation of our situation. If God is in all things, if he is in this recording and in you listening to it. And we have our instantiations of self, Andy and yourself. In some sense, maybe what I'm trying to do is to speak over garbled airwaves, if you will, or a, a confused dimension a fallen cosmos from one tiny shard of of a thing to another tiny shard of a thing and simply say I'm out here too and some theologians would suggest this is the road to like monad, monism and you know it's all just a giant oneness dude it's like it is and in a sense like you can see how it would just sort of turn right around into like well if everything's God like then and I'm part of God like fuck it man I can do whatever I want the missing pieces seem to me in an, in an analysis are and accounting for this constant diminished state, you know. We're not just fallen from the time of Adam. We're like fallen from the time of uh, Hemingway. I mean, we're fucking going fast. That'd be one. Two would be an actual contemplation of what panentheism would mean. Meaning our existence is not just contingent on it all of existence is contingent upon it and yet we've been made this way what does this mean well it suggests some much much grander stuff happening than what one life could encompass and so the sadness of not being able to know it all see it all you know 
catch every misstep as the, you know, for parents, um, save every hurt. And then another aspect of that sadness also seems to be a kind of longing towards this either re-enchantment and, you know, there's also a corresponding disappointment with wherever we've come to so far. So Sorge seems to me to be, and this is, you know, one of many places where me in the modern day, you know, Tilvel Hall, uh, quote, warrior, whatever, are going to diverge happily on, in, on, on my side. Um, as one listener pointed out in an email, you know, there is call for a code. There have been codes in the past. Codes with the samurai, codes with the knights of Europe. Um, and there's another code that's sort of being telegraphed now, you know, by BAP and uh, even these talks to some a uh, smaller extent, unless we've not detailed it much, but um, you know the a good-hearted rogue or the uh, criminal of purpose or the guy who's willing to bend the rules. We'll have to define these things. I hope you guys can help me out. I have some ideas, but at no point would it ever be okay for me to uh, to let go of this concept of sorge because what I would be letting go of would be letting go of God. I would be moving away from that. I would be letting go on an even kind of a quasi-atheist point of view. Well, if I don't do that for him, why the fuck should I fucking accept it from him and when I'm down, when I need it? Well, that won't happen. That shit will happen. That shit fucking happens. And it's not karma. It's just because not everybody is retarded. They can see that you're a piece of shit, and so they're going to walk away. But the sorge, this concentrated version of uh, one part empathy, one part kindness, one part sort of like we're all in this together, and uh you know that's a that's an essential piece even if you don't you you know if you're a hardcore barbarian and you're going to fucking stack mad bodies uh tomorrow um beware of the you know 100,000 fucking guys up on the rooftops that are highly trained long distance shooters that don't think that way that will end that shit real fucking quick but think of yourself again if that's the selfish point of view it's not for you guys for the people that have made it this far it's not but if you go into this exercise of stretching the mold expanding vistas into what is possible yeah in the in this push pull temporal quote material world that we have to operate in but what else? Could you invent 
something like a psychic defense and communicate that to your children or your friends or yourself? Could you invent something like a psychic... And I don't mean like psychics like two dudes sitting across the table talking to them. I mean it's extant in some type of grid of things beyond our immediate awareness. And with that, I think that I will leave myself in a bind that I will have to untether in a in a subsequent episode but this is the place that I'm driving towards as a area of curiosity um, because the world is too strange and I've seen personally too many strange you know Jung did a pretty interesting uh, little treatise on serendipity and it didn't really go that far and yet the world, as far as I can see it, is becoming like converging on levels of bizarreness. Uh, levels of abstract bizarreness are sort of running in a confluence to where, you know, we're in a condition where we're supposed to take seriously that there's a mock set across the street from the White House of the White House because for, for reasons, as the kids say. And, you know, the bars and the bulletproof glass, that's just, you know, um, we just haven't gotten around to taking it down yet. And this is, this is the road home, guys and gals. And if you don't just get in line and go for it, you're clearly a, a giant asshole. And so you see what I mean by like levels of abstract weirdness and absurdity. Have They have um, concentrated into a situation like that. And of course, the rest of the context is we have conversations like this going on all over the place outside of that. So once again, uh, I will double bind myself there and uh, see if see if we can check in next week and I, um, I extricate it. Thank you very much for listening if you made it this far. Thank you very much for your support and for the the shares, the comments, the likes, all this sort of stuff. Certainly the subscribers. I'm hoping to build this into something um, you know, I hope to get it like this last conversation where it's just barely in my grasp because I have a sense of, um, maybe we can draw other people in who can help us weave these together into something much bigger than what I could ever, uh, hope to contain or create. So till next time, take care.